Let's uh, pray and then we'll look at the word today. Father God, we thank you so much for the great truths in the scripture and for the prophets you sent to predict and foretell the coming of the Messiah so we would know who he is and there wouldn't be any doubt. Thank you for that. We give glory to your name as we look at your word in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Recently, on one of our Friday nights, we took a whirlwind tour of one of the great, well, the greatest of the prophetic books in the Bible, the prophecies of Isaiah. And Isaiah is the greatest because he has the most detail of all the prophets about the coming Messiah. There's a staggering amount of information in Isaiah about the Messiah. His deity, his character, his glory, his suffering as a sin offering. And there's not only a lot of information, but Isaiah's language aesthetically is just glorious. I mean, it's beautiful. It's really unsurpassed, and it's so memorable. Um, It's no accident that the most glorious music produced by man has the words of Isaiah for almost all of its content, and that handles Messiah, which we got to hear a couple weeks ago. But when a Christian thinks about Isaiah, he thinks about texts like Isaiah 7, 13, and 14. Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. I think Isaiah's words there have been on more Christmas cards than you could probably count in your lifetime. (laughs) Isaiah also speaks in Isaiah chapter 9, which we just read, but I'm going to read it again. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So a son given to us, a man, a man who is the mighty God and the eternal Father, he will be a glorious king, righteous and just, and whose kingdom will embrace all lands and all peoples, and there will be no end to its increase or of peace. How can that be? Well, later in Isaiah, in chapter 52 and chapter 53, we see how he's received by his people, Isaiah 53, 2, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed, we ourselves esteemed him stricken smitten of God and afflicted but he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him Isaiah 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 all of those passages 
the Messiah, human and divine, destined to rule the world, despised and forsaken of men. All of it's true, and all of it will happen. So Christmas is sort of the essential moment where his arrival begins this plan of redemption for the whole world. And I don't want to talk about Isaiah today, though. As important as Isaiah is, there's another prophet who lived in Isaiah's day, a contemporary. And as great as Isaiah was, God did not think that one prophet was enough at that particular time. So he sent Micah as well, and we're going to look at Micah today. You can find it in there if you want to. Micah's a much shorter book. It's found among the minor prophets near the end of the Old Testament. It's after Jonah, before Nahum, but those are really short too, so you've got to dig around a little bit for them. But Micah is given a key prophecy about Messiah's coming. Something about that time, these men lived moved God to reveal much more about the coming Messiah than had been true in the past. So you have to sit there and think about, well, what was going on in the 8th century B.C., more than 700 years before an angel would be dispatched to a young woman named Mary to announce that she would bear a son named Jesus? What was it about the time of Micah and Isaiah that God determined such abundant information about the Messiah should be forthcoming. What was unique about that particular time? Well, it was a time of reckoning. It was a time of judgment. It was a time of destruction. When Micah and Isaiah were born, God's people had lived in a divided kingdom for 300 years, ever since Solomon's time, after Solomon. There was a northern kingdom centered around a very powerful city called Samaria and most of the tribes of Israel aligned with that nation, often called Israel. And in the south, there was Judah, the the greatest of the tribes, the largest tribe, which really was um, dominating that whole southern region. But also joined with Judah was the tiny little tribe of Benjamin. And Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. So both nations were disobedient, idolatrous, wicked, faithless to the covenant. Judah had a few good kings over those 300 years, maybe five. Israel had no good kings, none at all. And God told them what would happen if they did not repent. The land would spew them out. They would fall to wicked pagan powers the way those people groups fell to Israel when they came and invaded the land under Joshua. The same thing would happen to them. And Micah and Isaiah lived at the time that the northern kingdom, those ten tribes, would be crushed by the Assyrians and taken off into captivity and eliminated from the land. So those men would live to see the day the Assyrians did all their brutal work in the northern kingdom. And Micah and Isaiah prophesy against the two kingdoms because it's going to happen from in Judah too, another hundred years, a little bit more away, when Babylon comes and takes the southern kingdom into captivity. Both Micah and Isaiah attack the wickedness of the chosen people. Here's Micah's, we're, we're doing Micah today. Micah chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. They're laying there just thinking about the next evil thing they can do. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. 
They covet fields and then seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks and you will not walk haughtily for it will be an evil time. They're not only corrupt, they're proud of it. Their rulers were wicked, and in Micah chapter 3, they're called out very specifically in chapter 3, verse 9. Hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. So they're trusting that the Lord will not bring calamity, while at the same time they oppress the weak and the powerless and the poor. In chapter 4 of Micah, there's a prophetic look to the end of the age. I mean the end of the end, even beyond us, what Micah calls the last days, when Israel will be restored, not only restored, but preeminent in the world, exalted, the center of human government on earth, the highest nation of the earth, because Messiah will be there and he will have Jerusalem as the seat of his government. And the language of chapter 4 is not only like Isaiah, it's in places, it's exactly the same. Now, did Messiah hear Micah say it and repeat it, or did Isaiah hear Micah say it and repeat it? I don't know. We'll give Micah the credit to say it first, just because he's so short. (laughs) Both prophets, though, bring the same message to nations under judgment. Devastation awaits, and yet a glorious future under the Messiah also awaits. And that's where our text today comes in, Micah chapter 5. Now Isaiah gets the famous prophecies about the Messiah. He gets Handel's Messiah. His book is 66 chapters long compared to Micah's 7. But Micah has one of the most remarkable prophecies in the whole Bible about the coming one. It's most amazing because it's so specific. I mean more specific than Isaiah. And being so specific, it tells us that in all of history... Just reasonably thinking about it, only one man could possibly be the Messiah and nobody else. So Micah chapter 5 verse 1 kind of launches us into this. Uh, It describes a gathering of troops. There's a siege by foreign enemies and the humiliation of the king in Jerusalem. There's a prophecy beginning in chapter 4 verse 9 and 10 that's looking ahead more than 100 years to Judah's fall to Babylon, actually mentions Babylon. So most likely chapter 5 verse 1 kind of belongs to that section. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, Micah 5.1 actually is the last verse in chapter 4. The chapter division is put differently because it's so connected to that. And verse 1 most likely refers to King Zedekiah, the last king of Jerusalem who rebelled against Babylon and who, after a brutal siege, was captured His sons were put to death before his eyes, and then his eyes were gouged out. So the last thing he would see was the murder of his sons. And then he was taken off to Babylon as a prisoner where he died some years later. And you can read all about that cheery story in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25, but 
But the messianic prophecy begins in verse 2. Verse 2 of chapter 5. God is speaking to a little tiny village. And what he says is absolutely astounding. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Wow. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that means Bethlehem in Judah because there was a little Bethlehem in the land of Zebulun as well, but this is the Judah one. Bethlehem was tiny. There's several lists of the cities in the Old Testament of the cities of uh, Israel and Judah and all of that and it doesn't make any of those lists. It's too small. It had one claim to fame though. David was born there. King David. David the great king. Now David received one of the great promises in the Bible which we call the Davidic covenant. Only Abraham had greater promises from God than David had. And the covenant promise God made with David is directly on the path to fulfilling the great promises made to Abraham. God told David, this is 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever and your throne shall be established forever. So it's a forever dynasty beginning with David, a kingship that will never fail that God will make sure comes to fulfillment. That's the very prophecy that was read earlier in the service from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and behold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's going to happen. God's going to make it happen. So Micah and Isaiah each telling us more and more about the Messiah. Isaiah hundreds of years after David, affirming that God will establish this kingdom forever. No matter what else happens, that kingdom will be established forever. And Micah telling us the very specific detail about where this king will be born. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Human kings do not have forever kingdoms. It doesn't happen. They try to. They want to. But it never happens. Always some rival pushes one line aside and a new line begins. Just look at the history of England, right? You've got all these different groups and the Plantagenets are all the kings for a while and then boom, pushed out of the way. And then you've got the Tudors, right? And all of that, it just keeps changing. Every country's like that. Kingdoms fall to other kingdoms. Families die out. Some weak grandson can't hold on to the power of his stronger progenitors. Kingdoms always fail. But not this one. Not this one. A ruler will come forth who will be unfailing. Now Isaiah says to establish his kingdom and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Well, how can that happen? Well, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts wasn't behind the Plantagenets or the Tudors or anybody else. But behind David, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Also, 
this guy's not some ordinary purpose, person, this coming ruler. He's special. Look what it says about him. He comes from Bethlehem, but his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. You can't say that about any other human ruler either. So he comes in time at some future date from where Micah is, but he's not bound by time as a person. Isaiah said he's the mighty God, the eternal father, which you could translate into father of eternity, actually created everything. Prince of peace. Micah tells us he's been around since long ages past. He's not a normal human being. He was going forth long before the first Christmas. He was going forth at creation and in appearing to Abraham and all throughout the Old Testament. Charles Feinberg, one of the great Old Testament scholars, points out that Micah's phrasing here in this verse, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In Hebrew, he says, quote, these, are the, these words are the strongest possible statement of infinite duration in the Hebrew language. There aren't Hebrew words that could be more clear that this is an infinite person. In fact, Feinberg points to similar language in Psalm 90, verse 2, which talks about the Lord God. It says, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's the same kind of phrasing. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22 and 23, it talks about wisdom. Wisdom describes herself um, with language like that. It says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. Very similar language about existing eternally. There from the beginning. This ruler from Bethlehem was there from the beginning. He's eternal. He's an eternal being. And that's perfectly consistent with the gospel of John and how it begins when John who the man who leaned on Jesus breast at the last supper when he wrote his gospel he began in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being and then a little bit farther down in verse 14 it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth God the word became flesh that's the greatest reality in the history of the world the greatest thing that's ever happened at one point in time the timeless one entered time and became flesh where, Micah says, in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem. How many people do you know that claim to be the Messiah that were born in Bethlehem? Well, you might not know too many people that claim to be the Messiah. But if you did know someone, were, were they, what are the odds that they were born in Bethlehem, a village of about 40 families? Tiny, tiny little village. I can only think of one person that came from there. God left information delivered to his prophets, recorded and preserved for all time, so we would know, so we couldn't be fooled. He's coming from Bethlehem, tiny Bethlehem, not L.A. You got five million people. One of those could be, the or Rome, you know, hundreds of thousands of people back then, you know. 
London, whatever London was, probably a village back then the size of Bethlehem, I don't know. But any of the great cities of the ancient world, it wasn't from some big city, Alexandria or something like that. Bethlehem, this tiny, tiny village. Sometime after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem following a star. And they came to Jerusalem and they caused quite a stir. We talked about that in ancient history when we went through Matthew chapter 2 together. They were prominent men. They weren't typical merchants, so they caused quite a stir. People noticed who they were. Men of notoriety, means. They started asking around town. Matthew chapter 2 verse 2 says, Where is he who was born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we came to worship him. Now, if you know anything about the king in Jerusalem, King Herod, he had a secret police force that was pretty much scattered throughout the city, and they picked up on this pretty quick and ran to him and told him what was going on. There's people looking for a new king. They're from the east. They look like important people. And the amazingly paranoid King Herod became worried. Now, he had already executed two of his own children, his own sons, for casting an eye at his throne in a way he didn't like. So he's not subtle, but he's going to play these guys a little bit subtly because he wants to know where this king is, right? I mean, there's some prophesied king that's going to take his place. So Matthew 2, 4 says, the king gathered together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, the experts, and he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So the wise men want to know, he wants to know, and uh, they get all these Bible experts together, and you know what they found? Micah. Matthew chapter 2, verse 5. In Bethlehem of Judea, this is what they tell the king. For this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh-huh. Micah. Micah, more than 700 years before those wise men came, Micah had written the place down. Micah said it would be Bethlehem. And that's why God had it written down. So we would know. So, if somebody claims to be the Messiah, ask them for their birth certificate. You want to know where they were born. Wrong place, wrong man, right? We could talk a lot about King Herod and the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem, but I really want to stay focused on Micah chapter 5 here. Look again at verse 2, and notice this ruler's um, position, his calling. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. For me, the Lord says. So that this divine Messiah, the one who's going forth or from eternity, he will be God's man serving God's purpose. And notice how his method of ruling is described. Verse Three, it says, therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who was in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise, verse 4, and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So he's a shepherd. He's going to take care of his people. He, he cares for them. But let's look at verse 3 first. I kind of jumped over that. The, the fact that Messiah is born in tiny little Bethlehem and not Jerusalem or some important place tells us that the Messiah comes in the line of David when the line of David had fallen on hard times. 
And it had been that way for a long time. So when Jesus came, there was no Davidic king sitting on the throne of Israel. In fact, Herod was an Arab. He was an Idumean. He wasn't Jewish at all. So when Mary conceived, there was no Davidic king on the throne. And it had been, it had been hundreds of years since there had been a Davidic king on the throne. When Jesus was born, Roman domination humiliated the Jewish people. And that's what it means that therefore he will give them up until the time when she who was in labor has born a child. In other words, God has given up the kingdom to other people until the time when Mary has born the child. And then from there, as so often happens in the Old Testament, Micah jumps right to the end of the age and Messiah's rule. So we're living in this big gap, which was not explicitly explained in the Old Testament. So you've got the suffering Messiah like in Matthew 20, I mean, Isaiah 53, and, and uh, you know, he dies, he's killed, and then all of a sudden he's reigning forever in Isaiah chapter 9 and things like that. Well, how do you get, you know, some rabbis thought there were two messiahs because one of them's going to die. Uh, Daniel also says Messiah's going to die in chapter, Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. So how do you get a dying messiah who reigns forever? Hmm, that is a mystery. Of course, from our end, looking back, we get it. Messiah dies as Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 as a sin offering, but he raises from the dead. And he ascends and he's going to come back. So we live in that in-between time. But the Old Testament prophecies frequently just lay them right together. So you've got suffering Messiah and boom, uh, he's ruling over the earth. And that's what Micah is kind of doing here. So first the gathering of the people of Abraham... The remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, verse 3. And then the description of his reign on David's throne. So here, as in Isaiah, it's all seen as one thing. The the focus is on his person and the final end, not God's whole program. In fact, Paul in the New Testament even says it's kind of a mystery, this gap time, this church age thing that we're living in. But he says here in verse 4, He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, who? The people he had gathered together. Because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth, and this one will be our peace. So you could certainly say that Jesus uh, in his earthly ministry was a shepherd to his flock and and all of that, but this is talking about the end of the age when he's going to regather Israel. That couldn't have happened until at least... uh, you know, within our lifetimes or some of your lifetimes. I mean, it was 1940. Israel had not been a nation from A.D. 70 all the way to 1948. It had not even been on the map. There was no place called Israel. It was gone. The Jews were scattered all over the world. So that regathering did not happen all of those many, 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 many years, and it's starting to happen now. So things are lining up in a certain way. But that's what it's talking about. So he's going to gather them, and then when he comes back, he's going to shepherd them. And he will be great to the ends of the earth, which is exactly what Daniel says, it's what Isaiah says. It's a universal, global kingdom of justice and righteousness in this amazing person whose goings forth were from long ago. So this describes restored Israel under the powerful and faithful Messiah. These prophecies all deal with God's nation, Israel. That's why these gaps in time aren't dealt with in detail in the Old Testament because it's about Israel and the Old Testament's all about Israel so 
we're looking at that history. That history stopped right after Jesus came the first time, and it started again only very recently. So it's going to happen. It's going to be compressed in time from a Israel point of view. Let's talk about this king shepherd. What kind of a shepherd is Jesus? He will arise, verse 4, and shepherd his flock. What kind of a shepherd is he? Well, what did Jesus call himself? I am the good shepherd, right? He's a good shepherd. The good shepherd, he said, lays down his life for the sheep. He's sacrificial. He cares more about the sheep than he does himself. He's the good shepherd because, he says, I know my own and my own know me. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a good shepherd. He hangs on to his sheep. Peter called Jesus the chief shepherd and the guardian of our souls. In the book of Hebrews, it calls him the great shepherd of the sheep. So he exercises his power and his majesty for the good of his sheep. Never forget that. Never forget that. James Smith, who preached in the 1860s, said this. If our shepherd is divine in his nature, if he is commissioned to take care of the flock immediately by the Father, if his flock is innumerable, if his under-shepherds are so many, and if his qualifications are perfect, ought he not be called the great shepherd of the sheep? Look at his qualifications and say, if his love is stronger than death, if his knowledge of his sheep is exact, if his diligence is untiring, his gentleness is great, his skill infallible, his power universal, if his wisdom is perfect, if his care is incessant, and if he has authority to give eternal life to every one of his flock, are not his qualifications complete? Amen. Yeah, yeah. Can you, even, can you even think of a better shepherd than him? Can you comprehend one? I can't. So, if you've put your faith in Christ as your king and your savior, he is that shepherd to you. He is your great shepherd. You will never perish. His grip on you is firm. Eternal life is yours by his sacrifice and his sovereign power to keep you until the last day. Say, so, well, I'm weak. Well, he's not. He's not weak. He laid down his life for you and he watches over you every day, good times and bad. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus as your Messiah, you really ought to do that. Because yes, he is a faithful shepherd and without him, you've got no shepherd. You're on your own and you will stand before the Lord someday. He is coming again. All of our destinies are tied to him as they say in Lord of the Rings, for good or for ill. But all of our destinies are tied to him. Eternal life is yours by his sacrifice, or it's not if you don't receive his sacrifice. His goings forth are from long ago. He's the mighty God. He's the father of eternity. He's the creator. He's the judge of the world. And he's coming again. And he's the great shepherd of the sheep. 
He is the way that God chose to provide for us to be reconciled with the Father. If you want to be reconciled to God, you have to go with the way He provided. And God has from the beginning set forth this plan to redeem humanity and the world. And the world is not a mess by accident. You know, that didn't just happen. Humans chose to make it a mess. It's on us. We, may, we chose against the Creator. And God's choice is to fix it. And He's going to do it His way. And you've got to get in line with His way. He will fix us if we will be fixed by the saving work of Christ. Christmas is God's announcement that judgment is real and He sent a Savior to save us from it. That's what Christmas is all about. We need a Savior. You need a Savior. And you are blessed. You are so blessed that the one Savior God has provided is the most wonderful person imaginable. Aren't you lucky? He is worthy of your faith and your hope. And He's the one God provided. Let's pray. Lord, you arranged all things well. You sent the Christ child, long promised. You said where he would be born, so we couldn't miss him. And he's perfect in every way. So we cannot easily turn from him. He's your gift to be received or rejected. But give us grace to receive him and all his glory and goodness. In his name we pray, amen.